Chris, you and me, one more time? Or should I say two more times? You're going to have to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right. Play ball. Happy day, boys and girls, and thank you from a deep place in our hearts for placing an ear to the 130th fastball of the sports movie podcast known as Scoring at the Movies. We discuss motion pictures with baseball bats and steering wheels and hockey sticks and running shoes and boxing gloves and basketballs and all kinds of other things on this channel every other Thursday, and we cover the movie from front to back. Full spoilers. I'm the aging pitcher who never had much of a fastball, but who's pretty good at clearing the mechanism. Number 14, Ryan Ellis. And here's the ultimate guy who's angry that the powers that be cut the shower scene where he did full frontal. Chris DiGregorio. Did you know about that? I did not. I'm curious now. Costner apparently had a scene where he did full frontal and they cut it because people, I guess, laughed. Maybe because they thought the tone was weird. Why are you showing a naked guy in a movie that's, I don't think, even R-rated otherwise. There's no swearing in this. There's no violence. In this movie specifically. That seems needless. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, thank you, Ryan. (laughs) I will also say that you are both very good at cleaning the mechanism and clearing the mechanism. You're a tidy fellow. That was a good moment, actually, when he does that a few different times. And that's one of the great shots that. that Raimi and his cinematographer, John Bailey, came up with. The background goes blurry or something like that. It blurs out the crowd, and Mm -hmm. all you see is the catcher, the hitter in focus, Mm -hmm. and, of course, you see Costner in focus, too. But, yeah, blocking everything out. It was a good visualization Mm -hmm. of that. Something we hear athletes say all the time is they don't notice the people behind a backboard going, oh, shooting free throws, or a pitcher throwing the ball, or name the sport. They don't even notice the fans. But before that happened, these guys are heckling him, and he can hear all of them in Yankee Stadium in a full crowd. (laughs) Yeah. He's got very good hearing, apparently. Later, towards the end of the game, when he's trying to do it and he's unable to, I'm like, that's kind of a nice touch also because it's a good representation of athletes that you know are flustered or are maybe too much in their own head and they can't quite get in the right, the right Old and tired space. also. Let's not forget that. Old and tired, He's yeah. 40 years old and he's had a bad injury in the offseason and he's been doing this a long time. Okay, so the specific timeline of that five years that this flashbacks in this movie are meant to cover... Okay. You're never quite sure how much time exactly has passed between one point and another. You can kind of infer, right? And you know it's happening linearly. So, you know, one thing's happening before the next, before the next kind of thing. But that injury where he's not sure if he's going to come back, I wasn't certain whether that... He sure is going to come back. No one else is. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that happened immediately before the final season they pitched. I think it's supposed to be, yeah. The off season, yeah. Because the kid seemingly got way older... In a few months. Because she's in the scene preceding when he's inside and they're doing all like the holiday stuff. Mm-hmm. I know it's only five years in total, but she still seems like a real young kid. And then towards the end of the movie, he meets her at USC and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, oh, are you 18 or 19? I always thought you were like 14 throughout this whole movie. What the heck is going but on? she grew up because it's been that many years. I like the touch though where she asks him, do you remember me? <laughs> he was her second father, basically. She got in trouble for smoking yeah. in a montage scene where you can tell that Kelly Preston is dressing her down for smoking. But in that moment, it's Christmas time, and Costner's got Jenna Malone on his shoulders, dressing the tree or something like that. So he's got the look on his face of, oh, no, you're in trouble, and we were having fun five seconds ago. What do I do? He got really close to her. What is this? Do you remember me stuff from her? Well, that's the other reason why I was like, okay, has like two or three years passed? If 
that trimming the tree just before the accident thing happened just before the season. It's four, five, six months earlier. How could he possibly have forgotten you mm-hmm. already? At least I was thinking, okay, maybe it's two or three years. Maybe that's slightly more plausible. It still doesn't make sense because of the way they portray, like you said, their relationship really getting close very quickly. There was a lot of stuff about this movie that, at least when it came to the relationship stuff, I had a lot of trouble connecting the dots and making linkages because the way people acted one scene to the next was wild to me. Mm. I had to stop the movie at one point and just sort of clear the mechanism myself (laughs) because, in fact, it was the scene when we meet Heather for the first time, right? When Kelly Preston's character calls Billy in a panic, daughter ran away, blah, blah, blah. Here are the details. Okay, what's her name? Freedom. Silence. No, it's Heather. I had to go in there. I'm like, what mother in her right yeah. mind in, in this moment, panic state is going to run a bit on Billy Chapel? That's Sam Raimi's sense of humor. Because Sam Raimi, despite being a horror guy, is also a comedy guy. Okay. But you're right. The tone is wrong right there. Yeah. If it's Dumb and Dumber, whatever. Yeah. It all goes, right? But this movie is not a funny movie, basically, at any point. So why this zinger in when the middle? When she's this worked up about her daughter yeah. being... Well, she knows, I think, where she is, but still. And she happens to be in Boston when he's in Boston. Yeah. What were the odds of that? (laughs) I'd say they were wicked awesome, Ryan. Nice. We've barely covered the things I have later on that are the, oh my God, type things. (laughs) But we already covered a lot of the problems. Well, anyway, let me set it up as you take a drink of tea. Water. Just plain old water. Hydrating. Well, I'm off now. My stretch of shift, so I am drinking some alcohol with some Diet Pepsi. Okay, reminiscing the movie. Sure. was released by Universal Pictures on September 17th, 1999, and we had to pay for it because I couldn't find it otherwise. If we had Peacock, I guess it would have been free. Universal pumped $80 bucks into this production, but it only made $46 million, and that's worldwide. I Kevin Costner wasn't quite the star anymore. Kelly Preston was never really a name. Maybe that didn't no. help either. J.K. Simmons wasn't that well-known, so you don't really have a big-name cast. And Sam Raimi had done plenty of good movies. Hadn't done Spider-Man, so it wasn't like his name was that huge yet either. And maybe it was the marketing. I don't know why. Do you think this movie would at least basically broken even? When I say it came out, it was September. Well, that's getting at the time of year when you got some competitive stuff out there. I don't know. How often have we talked about movies that were much better than this one that similarly underperformed at the box office? And oftentimes we attributed it to they don't care to market sports movies very much. Yeah. Now, I will say this movie is very clearly conceptualized as a rom-com first and foremost. And then Not so much the com, but yeah, okay. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It's got Jerry Maguire-esque comedy sport Fair. vibes. Which she's in. Kelly she Preston's is. in. Now, Jerry Maguire, way better movie, way mm-hmm. more entertaining. And she's great in that. She is she's, great. She's fine. She I, does the best she can. She was never the best actress. Frankly, Don't mean to spit in her grave. Poor woman's dead. Feel bad, oh, for, John Tra- that. Feel bad for John Travolta. Yeah, she died in 2020. I've got nothing against Kelly Preston. Like I said, we both liked her in Jerry Maguire. And I feel like any failings in this movie for her character are not her fault. I already touched on one scene where the writing was just doing her no favors, and I think that's a pretty consistent thread throughout. It's a very low number, but it doesn't surprise me that it didn't make production budget, never mind any marketing stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good movie, period. No one else did either. No. But I do think this is a perfectly fitting movie for us to do for this episode of the podcast, like you said. The penultimate episode. The penultimate. It's a Costner movie, so yet another Costner movie. Number six. The third Costner baseball movie, cumulatively, because you did Bull Durham, of course, with Bev. We did Field of Dreams, and here he is again. And the stuff that worked for me in this movie, and it worked really well, were the elements of Billy Chappell reminiscing, coming to terms with changing life circumstances, things coming to an end, acknowledging that, and getting ready for the next stage in life. 
Second to last podcast episode before we wrap this up, it's perfectly fitting. We were going to do something like Little Big League, which maybe isn't great either, but it does fit the motif that you wanted to go for in the original point, which was, what does Chris think of a movie now that he saw when he was in his teens? And I was like 20 when that came out as well. But then I thought, well, let's get the Costner six-sum done, because Mm -hmm. you're right. I covered Bull Durham with Bev, so we weren't going to do that here on this podcast, although that's my favorite of his movies. I love Field of Dreams, but the one I watch the most, I might watch it tonight after we talk about it a little bit today. <laughs> Just cleanse the palate of this movie. Is Bull Durham. I love Bull Durham, <laughs> apparently more than you do. And maybe there's another movie I overlooked, but that makes seven sports movies. But I knew this wouldn't be, well, I didn't know. I thought this wouldn't be great, and it wasn't. But it's for the reasons you just gave, and also the fact that you're basically his age. I'm older than he is in that's this true. movie. He's 40. So right. another factor, and I think I like this movie more this time than when I saw it the first time, and more than a lot of the critics did, because I'm in some ways relating to him now. That shoulder that you're trying to work through? I happen to turn my shoulder as well. That's a different situation. Yeah, I dislocated it a few months ago. We haven't thrown the ball yet. We meant to today. We hopefully will in the next couple of days. Yeah. We'll see if I can throw very well. It's just softball. But still, we've talked about this for the five years we've done this podcast. We relate to these sports movies, or try to anyway, yeah. and we can really relate to this character in many, many ways. Although, as a pitcher, I don't think I've ever talked to myself or to the batter, including getting very animated sometimes with the opposing batter. <laughs> you remember a three-hitter on their team. If somebody smiles at you, you don't loudly say to yourself, don't smile at me, mm. man. I hate it when you smile <laughs> at me. I think that's a little overplayed, obviously. But, I mean, it's a very common thing to see pitchers on television just muttering to themselves, talking to themselves. They play it up for this movie, but... By and large, I think it's supposed to be the inner monologue that we're actually hearing. Yeah. It was interesting to watch this movie as a now 42 year old with all the aches and pains that go along with mm-hmm. that, whether it's from recreational sport or otherwise. And you know, I've had a variety, not really shoulder, well, I have had shoulder injuries, but I've had a variety of injuries over the years that's caused me to give up playing some games that I like because I don't want to blow myself up again. You and that table saw. I can't stop, Ryan. I just have to make chairs. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) You don't use a table saw with your pitching hand. I really want to touch on that immediately after this. But just to finish the previous thought, it did make a lot of sense, a lot of what Costner's character was going through from a baseball perspective only. All the rom-com stuff or all the relationship stuff, I have no clue. But I understood the desire to hang on, but then you come to the realization that, yeah, you know what? I've just got to recognize where I'm at in life and look to the next thing, right? So those kinds of things spoke to me. And it was interesting thinking about that watching the movie, because if I watched this movie as a 20-year-old, 25-year-old, something like that, the relationship stuff that I already said I didn't like, I still wouldn't like. Right. And all of that baseball stuff and the inner monologue stuff... That's not you yet. ...would have been lost on me. So I would have thought this movie was a zero out of 10. Mm. Now, there's a lot more of it that does speak to me, obviously. Mm. One thing that does not is the stupidity of, why are you using a table saw if you're a pitcher in the big leagues? Come on, Especially with your right hand. You know what killed me about that scene? They specifically give you that 30-second shot of him working with the table saw itself, loading the wood on and stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to cut his hand wide open. Then he grabs a piece of wood, uses that to push the log forward. Oh, okay, so he's sensible. How can he be hurt really that way? Yeah, and then the very next shot, he comes down with this blood gushing down his arm. I'm like, what did you do? They never explain exactly how the accident happened. It's just table saw, Kevin Costner, cut to bleeding hand. Mm. All of these athletes that hurt themselves in yeah. really dumb ways in the offseason. I cut a little more slack on that, actually, because they're trying to have a life, which I guess you could say he is here, too. But with something like a table saw, maybe you were too young for this, Bob Ojeda, the Mets pitcher in, I think, the late 80s, he was pruning the hedges or something like that, and he cut off his pitching finger. I think Oh, the, God. The middle finger, maybe. I don't know how you would ever do that, because with pruning shears, you're going with both hands. Maybe he was holding a branch with one and it, a clip. That could be, or it could be the hand ones as well yeah. he's using. And I don't know how you got your finger. I oh. 
you would think that the minute you start feeling pain, okay, we'll stop cutting and it wouldn't be so bad. He's really but aggressively I think going he literally after it. cut his finger off, though, or at least the tip of it off. I remember somebody said, the guy's got to live his life. Fair point. But also maybe in the season. And also, that's not such a fair point when it comes to even then the kind of money that's involved in this. And right. probably he wasn't 22 anymore. You want to think about your legacy and the end of your career. The Mets were always in contention for World Series championships. Maybe you don't get to do things like that. Maybe you do hire a gardener. You do have to live your life reasonably. Fair. But if you're a 39-year-old former superstar pitcher, still apparently the face of the franchise and all that kind of stuff, maybe you put off your wannabe carpentry career for like another year or two yeah. and don't play with the giant saws until you're retired. And maybe. it also doesn't help there in the middle of nowhere because it took a long time for him to get proper treatment. Kelly Preston's red letter scene in this movie, I would say, is when they're in the hospital and she's screaming for help. It's almost like that scene in terms of endearment. Give my daughter the shot! <laughs> no, did you laugh like I laughed when she yelled out, are we not in America? And I'm like, yes, you are. That's why your health care is this bad. Now, granted, this guy is rich. He would get better That's treatment. your point, actually. It's yeah. kind of a cynical thing. It's more like the character she would have played in Jerry Maguire, which is, but he's special. He should get treated right now with everybody else. And the yeah. doctor, by the way, in that scene is... Daniel Day Kim. Right, from Lost. Yeah. And many other things, but I was thinking of Lost first and foremost. I had a good laugh at the receptionist. I joke about the Are We Not in America, because she starts there, and then she leads into, is baseball not America's pastime? So you're obviously mm -hmm. right. They're making a very cynical comment there. Blood has soaked through his entire sleeve of his arm and stuff. He's literally thrashing in a bed in pain, and the receptionist is like, just gonna have to wait. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. And then, of course, the doctor comes over and immediately medevacs the guy out of there. If you're Daniel Day Kim's character, the doctor that Kelly Preston grabs and forces to look at Costner's wound, after he gets Costner in the medevac, does he go back to the hospital to talk to the receptionist? What are you doing? If that guy had died without being looked mm -hmm. at, you know how much money he could have, his family could have sued us for? Come on, lady. And she's just like, what are you going to do? I'm I a basketball girl. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the answer. No, I hate the Tigers. Yeah, they're somewhere in a snowy part of the U.S. Maybe mm. it's hockey country up there. They yeah, don't follow baseball. Red Wings. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're in the Colorado Rockies or something. We only follow the Avalanche. Joe Sackett just won us a cup in 96. He's my boy. All right. Okay, well, I talked about, and you obviously know this too, but I'll give the actual numbers on the critical reception for this, which was not good. 46% of critics liked the film, so I said nobody liked it, but then 46% isn't nobody. 6.1 out of 10 is the average, though, which means wow. that those who liked it liked it quite a lot, I guess, because that's a fresh tomato with the percentages. No, with the average, I should say, but not percentages. 94 reviews are on the site and 75% of audiences. Box office-wise, I like this part. The numbers match up pretty well here. It was 57th at the 1999 U.S. box office. Any given Sunday, we covered that. Number 28, The Hurricane, we covered that. Number 48, and Mystery Alaska, which you hated, I we did. covered that. Number 68. I will say, I hated Mystery Alaska much more than I hated this movie. No, yes. Okay, fair enough. And Costner was up for a Razzie and a Stinker's Bad Movie Award. Really? In conjunction with Message in a Bottle that same year. So oh, okay. both movies were part of both things, the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards and the Razzie. I don't think it's fair. I saw Message in a Bottle once, I think in the theater, 24 years ago, I guess it was. I actually liked that. I reviewed that movie back when I used to do reviews. Robin Wright, his love interest, Paul Newman's got a pretty good role in that film. Okay. I don't remember that being a bad performance at all. You, me, and Bev, we like him. Yeah. I don't think he's bad in this movie. I don't know why he's up for a Stinker's Bad Movie Award. Mm. Exactly. It's not like it's a great performance by his standards. Tin Cup's way better. Sure, yeah. Field of Dreams is way better. Bull Durham's way better. Yeah. On and on. But is it bad enough he's up for an award that says, you're terrible? When you first said that, my initial reaction was that that's not fair. Now, granted, I've never seen Message in a Bottle, so I can't speak to that. But as I'm reflecting on that, 
I've already said the baseball stuff works for me. And he's done those three baseball movies. He's done sports movies. He's clearly a guy that gets the mentality of sport and he knows how to portray an athlete's mentality. He's a good athlete. He's a flat out good athlete as well. Yeah. So I don't think I buy Kevin Costner, at least not an older Kevin Costner, as a romantic interest or romantic lead. The writing, I think, of the relationship stuff sucks in this movie. So that played into it too. There's so many ridiculous moments and bits of dialogue. When he's with John C. Riley, when he's with J.K. Simmons, when he's on mm. the baseball diamond, I love it. The other stuff, not so much. It's a little bit of like a dichotomy of performance to me. I think it's story. the writing more than him, though. It might be. Neither- and Sam Raimi is a good director, but he's out of his element with this. I think he is, too, yeah. Some good moments, for sure. Some good camera shots. Yeah. The writer, by the way, Dana Stevens, she wrote this, and she wrote last year's The Woman King, which was a pretty oh, solid yeah. movie. Not incredible, but a solid film. And she based on Michael Shara, S-H-A-A-R-A, I guess it's Shara, his 1991 novel. And, of oh. course, Raimi directed, did the Evil Dead series, did the Spider-Man movies, which yeah. was after this. Evil Dead was all before this. Spider-Man was all after it. The movie before this, though, I think still my favorite movie he's ever made. And I like Spider-Man 1 and 2. And I love the Evil Deads, especially the first two of those. You don't like Army of, of Darkness? I love Army it's of fine. Darkness. It's fine. It's fine. But his best movie and the best thing that Bill Paxton ever did, one of the best things that Billy Bob ever did, one of the best things Bridget Fonda ever did, A Simple Plan, yeah, which was the movie. year before this. And it's nothing like this. Because this is schmaltzy and this has an awful lot of problems and it's way too long. Way too long. Simple Plan is arguably too long, I guess, but I don't think so. I think that was a, I'm not going to say I think, it was a great screenplay Mm. with good performances across the board. The year after this, he does The Gift with another great cast, Kate Blanchett. Billy Bob Thornton wrote that or was involved in the writing of it anyway. Keanu's in that, Hilary Swank's in that. It was a weird movie. It was a weird movie, but it was so different than the Evil Dead stuff. And we didn't know he was going to do Spider-Man, but that's the way it went down. It was all the Evil Dead stuff. The Quick and the Dead, I think, was between that and Simple Plan. Plan. Then this, then The Gift, then you get the Spider-Man stuff. What a weird checkered career this guy's had. (laughs) He did Doctor Strange, the sequel, last year, which did fine. Not incredible for Marvel. I think it was very good. But it did okay at the box office. Sure. But what a strange career. And this is a very weird choice for him. Yeah. The biggest problem is him as the director and... Stevens' screenplay. You can never really know unless the director actually says, I did this movie because. But, you know, it could be somebody wanted him to do it. He's a baseball fan, I read. And also this is... it. Well, they're in New York. Yankee Stadium, obviously. But he's a Michigander, so this is his team. Yeah. Detroit would be his team. Vin Scully said something like, the Cathedral of New York belongs to the chapel or something like that. I didn't know this was based on a book, so I attributed this to the screenwriter, but maybe it's the author of the book. I could see Vin Scully saying that, though. I could, too. But it felt like somebody was writing this either book or movie. I need a character to fit this quippy line. Billy Chapel. He reverse engineered the whole movie around that. That's kind of what it felt like. A week and a half ago, we covered, Bev and I did, The Odd Couple. Oh, yeah. You've heard of Felix Unger, right? Of course. I'm yeah. sure from the series and from the movie. One of my favorite lines, and if people heard that podcast, they're going to hear it again here. We're out of cornflakes, signed FU. It took me three hours to figure out FU was Felix Unger. <laughs> Because we talked about that in that podcast, and I'm editing it a couple hours ago today as we record this one. Neil Simon may have just made him Felix Unger just for that line, just for that joke. A great R-rated joke that's actually not R-rated because you don't swear, but you're implying a swear. Maybe it's the same thing here. You reverse engineer Chapel's name because you're in Yankee Stadium. I do like that, though, because they could have had it be a home game in Detroit, and maybe it's a terrible crowd, but the people that are there, Billy, Billy. Instead, it's he's got to face this hostile crowd. The Yankees are trying to win the division. Yeah. Not the pennant. The game means nothing to Detroit. But in the end, you've got one of the most rare accomplishments in sports history, a perfect game for a pitcher. I liked the fact that they put it in a hostile environment. I liked the moment early on when Gus... John C. Riley's character sees 
Costner wins just reaching for the overhead bin in the plane and says, yeah. how long has you been hurting? Blah, blah, blah. And they says, don't throw tomorrow. Because at this point, everyone's still assuming that Billy was going to come back for the following season. And the season's so long done for them. Don't throw tomorrow because it's a meaningless game. And Costner's response is, well, it's not meaningless to the Red Sox. I like that. That was a good line. Yeah. By either the novelist or Dana Stevens or somebody. And it just gave you a little bit of insight into the mentality of Billy Chappell's character. A competitor. Competitor, right? And I think that's... And professional, too. Yes. You don't just lay down because Boston is needing you to beat New York. If you can, you should try your best. That's right. And we get similar stuff coming from J.K. Simmons later on, too, talking about this final game. You're right. It means nothing for the Tigers and the standings or anything, but it does still mean things to these individual players. So... I thought that was important, especially given some of the stuff we see with Costner's character a little bit later on. It sets up what he's willing to do later. It also makes a little bit more sense when he's agonizing over, do I quit or not? And then the ultimate decision that he makes is substantiated by what you learn about him as a person and a ball player up until that point. I know you wanted to talk about a lot of stuff with respect to the baseball I'd rather end on that. I don't want to end on the relationship stuff. So I'm going to propose we touch on the other side of the movie first. Okay. Well, before we do, I got it in the notes. I want to scroll past it and we'll do it right now. Sure. Okay. We don't have to dwell on this too much. But I did say about how, I tried to make the point a second ago, that the Yankees are not playing for the pennant. Yeah, I know. I'm surprised. Maybe Vin Scully thought, I'm not an actor. Sam Raimi, this director, he's done all these movies. He's telling me to say this thing. The Yankees are playing for the pennant. No, they're not. They're playing for the division. What is this? Rookie of the year? So, in a nutshell... You've heard the famous quote, right? What's that? The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. From 1951, the Bobby Thompson home run. The nutshell is, the Yankees aren't playing for the pennant. The Yankees aren't playing for the pennant. The Yankees aren't playing for the pennant. They're playing for the American League East. In 1999, you got to play a divisional round and then the American League Championship Series, which the Yankees did do, and they won the World Series that year, which no one knew when they made the movie. Of course, it was made in 98 into 99. They were great then, though, too. They won the World Series both those years. But anyway, I just had to reference that, the Giants thing about, they won the pennant. That yeah. was true then. Giants beat the Dodgers back then. You've got, I think it was nine or ten teams, whatever it was, eight teams, wherever. You move on to the World Series. That's it. Late 90s, now you've got three rounds. And Vince Scully should have said, Sam, you're wrong. That didn't twig for me, to be honest with you, when I watched the movie. But It's minor, but I have a lot of pedantic stuff I'll get through before we're done. You and I love to pick on stuff like that, but... When it came to things like Rookie of the Year, and they were totally disinterested in knowing anything about the game at all. So when they're saying things like, if they win this game, they go to the World Series. I'm like, the regular season isn't over yet. What are you talking about? This movie feels a lot of the time like it understands the game. And maybe this is a credit to the performance of Costner that he gives it that element. So when you get an error that if you just took a moment to look at what the playoff structure of baseball was in the 90s, you should be able to figure out pretty easily. So you want to talk about the personal stuff? Yeah. Which is the worst part of this movie. And it's not that Costner and Preston are bad together. They could probably have been great in a movie together. Sure. Jenna Malone is the girl. Briefly in the movie, I think she's pretty good too. But I thought she was the best of the three when it came to the relationship stuff. Young girl attaching herself to surrogate father and developing that relationship Mm -hmm. is kind of a touching thing inherently. So maybe that helped a little bit. And most of that development is done in montage with voiceover and whatnot. Like I say, she's on his shoulders at Christmas time. That one shot tells you Maybe not everything, but a lot. It really does, yeah. Which, again, like you said earlier, is why the do you remember me thing was so (laughs) weird and surprising. Yeah. This is another reason why this movie is kind of fitting, because how many movies have I said I hate the romantic subplot Mm -hmm. because it feels like it got shoehorned in here by a studio exec that thought, well, we need something here for the ladies or something, right? Yeah. I don't feel that way about this No, this must have been in the book. There's so much of it. There's no way this was shoehorned. Exactly. So the romantic subplot is a necessary element if you're going to make this movie. 
But the thing that threw me for a loop was the timelines of their relationship between Kelly Preston and Kevin Costner's characters, because the movie opens on Costner waiting for Kelly Preston to show up in the hotel room, right? which is a crazy nice hotel room. The nicest. Oh, yeah. It's a suite. Oh, Giant my. suite. At first I thought, is this his apartment? No, they're in New York. He doesn't live there. This is the hotel room the team gets him when well, he's in New York? Maybe because he's the ultimate player. He's I know the guy on the team. It's got to be Lord. Like, Look at Gus's room. It's fine. Yeah. But it's about a tenth of the size. It's a normal hotel room. This thing is like a freaking palace. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's sitting there drinking himself silly, waiting for her, and she never shows up. And then we find out... Oh, nice touch, though, by the way. Putting his elbow in the champagne bucket that, that is for nice. the ice. Yeah. I wonder if that was just sort of like an improv moment that Costner did, or whether that was in the screenplay... So anyway, eventually Preston does catch up with him and explains she's going to London. Okay, so these must be two people that had, if a tumultuous on-off-again relationship, something really deeply felt, probably long-term, whatever. And then we find out later through the flashbacks that no, they only met each other five years ago. Five years is not an insignificant amount of time. But initially, it's like, okay, we slept together once. I'll be back in town next month. We'll see each other then. You're my New York girl. You're my New York girl. So how many... they agreed, we're not going to make this a serious thing. Yeah. And you live your life. I live mine. And, and if she didn't get that he might be boinking other people, then that's on her. That is. And that's something else we have to talk about that scene, because that's another wild thing. But they're only seeing each other once a month, if that, with the Tigers in town. Yeah, true. Yeah. And as far as we're made aware at that point, they're in the off season he's living in California somewhere and she's still in New York and they're not really seeing each other. Eventually it does become more serious, but then she gets mad at him when he injures himself and he is a total dick at that point. She's well within her rights to get mad oh, at the him. the table saw thing. That's deep in the relationship though too. Yeah, but then there's a lot of on-again, off-again stuff in the interim that mm. is not made entirely clear time-wise. And then that happens... I wasn't sure at that point whether it was just prior to the final season, but assuming it was, as was yeah, your interpretation. Supposed to be, yeah. We're at the last game of the year when he's reminiscing against New York, mm-hmm. right? So that's September. The first pitch of the season is somewhere in March. The hand thing happened long enough that he was able to rehab it. So let's say that happens in December because it's around the holidays, okay. November, December. That means they've been broken up for close to a year by the time that she starts going off to London. Who are you at this point, Billy? To call this woman, expect that she's going to show up at your hotel room because you want to see her. You've been broken up for that long. You've never had that particular serious a relationship anyway. And then when you do find out she's moving to London, who cares? You didn't live together. You were in separate cities already. You're rich. You can pay for it. But I just thought that long distance is never cool, but it's not that hard if you're this wealthy. Yeah, you're already seeing each other sporadically anyway. Pay to fly her first class from London rich to New York. fly in a way that we imagine taking up the dog, especially when they fly on a private jet or something like that, or they hire a charter. You're only playing baseball for six months a year, go to London the other six months, and you're 40 years old. At best, you have like a year or two left in the tank, probably. And I know you've got the Verlanders and the Scherzers of the world, but still, they're 40, 41, 42. So at best, you've got another year or two in your career, Billy. And And he won't admit it, but he clearly loves her and had the whole time. Once you retire, then you go move to London. When he gets mad at her trying to rehab and that whole thing... It doesn't seem like she's really doubting him the way he accuses her of. No, it doesn't at Nor all. Or is the trainer really doubting him? The trainer's doing his job. He can be mad in the moment. This isn't working out. Sure. My hand isn't recovering the way I want to. But him being mad at her the way he was didn't track. I agree. And I think the other thing that didn't track for me with that whole hand injury sequence was 
they're in the medevac. She can't get in with them. And he's just yelling, call Mike Udall yeah. or whatever the trader's name is. He's the most important person for me right now. It zooms on I Kelly I think a Preston. surge is the most important person for you right now, not a trainer in a baseball team. That is objectively true. You're right. But the camera zooms in on Kelly Preston's face looking distraught that she's not the most important person for him right now. Fine. You could have a moment of hurt. But you, you take that personally, you're being stupid. Yeah, you've already accepted that Billy is who he is, that he's obsessed with baseball. We have the scene where I don't want to date a guy that's on kids buy your baseball card and all that kind of stuff. The ultimate guy. Which, incidentally, is also a stupid scene. Nobody's bought baseball cards for bubblegum since 1952. In the early 90s, I was collecting cards, and there was never gum in them at that point. Because it might think, ruin the card. I guess. So anyway, he's yelling because he's worried that it might end his career. And he's not thinking about, I might hurt your feelings. Yeah. You can be hurt in the moment. But then I think we're supposed to understand that that hurt from that moment carried forward into the subsequent fights and was part of the reason why it blew up the way it did. They don't talk like human beings yes. would talk in this relationship. I agree, yep. At some point, Kelly Preston's character would have said, listen, Billy, I almost drove us off a cliff getting you to the hospital and I was hurt. He was said, I'm sorry, you know, I was blah, 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 I was in the moment and they would have worked it out. It's not something that she should have held onto. And if she's going to hold onto it and not talk about it, F your feelings because you weren't being an adult about it. So the whole relationship conflict that we're supposed to root for and then, I guess, cheer at the end when they meet up in the lobby of the airport, silly moment. Although I yeah. did like the janitor walking through, staring at them. Come on, you're too old for this nonsense. That was a fun <laughs> Oh, by the way, my nutshell was going to be, I used the one, I guess it was two weeks ago in our last episode about yeah. Ross with the, hi, <laughs> for James Conn and Rollerball. And this one I was going to be, have you seen the finale of Friends? I have, of course. It's been so many years, I don't care about spoiling this at this point. Did she get off the plane? Did she get off the plane? She got off the plane. Yeah. It was similar in this, right? Because Did you get on the plane? Did you get on the plane? (laughs) Yeah, please get away. I really don't want it. But yeah, he goes to the airport and then she's still there. Although I did like the honesty and the surprising element of him crying in the hotel room by himself. Because I think that's one of those scenes that has a lot of layers to it. Yes. He's crying because his career's over and he's willingly given up. He's quoted the name of the movie on the ball for Brian Cox. Was it, I'm done, I'm finished, whatever the line is. Tell them I'm finished, I guess, right, to the new owners. Yeah. For love of the game, Billy Chapel. He's crying because she didn't show up because he wanted to be with her. Right. And he's probably crying because I'm in such pain. <laughs> yeah. But also there's an element, and we see it through the whole film, about his friendships with Gus and with Davis, who's on the Yankees now. I think people that do this for a living can lose contact very easily. And you go to old timers day and yeah, we were friends forever. They stayed friends. And some baseball players and hockey players and football players and basketball players and whatever stay friends probably through their whole lives. But generally speaking, you probably lose touch. He's probably crying for the loss of that too. And doesn't he say that his parents, both of them died? Yes. Now Costner's actual parents, at least his dad was still alive when this was made. That footage we see of his parents, that is his dad, Bill, that plays his dad in this film. So... All these things he's lost now, he's 40. And that's the funny thing, too. As a baseball player, that's pretty old. As a human being, that's not old. No. You've got, you hope, another 40 years ahead of you. Maybe more. Late 90s, he's still making more than a million a year, presumably, as a star that he was. And we even had Brian Cox's character early in the movie say, you were smart with your money, right? And Billy seems to indicate, yeah, I'm not worried about money. So you're right. Life is just beginning for him. But I felt similarly impacted by that moment. And it's also rare to see a macho actor, and Kevin Costner, I think, fits that mold, crying in a movie. I think I felt similarly watching Stallone do this in some movies, too. It's not like an ugly cry, but it's not like a manly tear down the cheek. But Costner weeps in this scene. He weeps, right? And I read it exactly the same way you did. 
because the on-field stuff, that reminiscing about things that you've experienced, holding on to the memories of that, letting it go and moving on to the next and accepting that, all of that stuff that has hit me a little bit in middle age about elements of my life, you know, it kind of comes home to roost. It's one thing to accept a thing. Yep, it makes sense. I can accept that and move on. But still. But the emotion of it doesn't hit you until later and then suddenly, bam, you're overcome with the emotional meaning of what you've already done or decided or whatever. That certainly happened to me. And so when I see that in Billy here, I was like, that works. I know I said everything outside of the baseball stuff for Costner didn't work for me. This scene is the exception. I thought it was really well done. Maybe the emotional peak of the movie. You think about how this would have been, I don't know how baseball teams do it, but we've been together for all these months, spring training season's what six months long yeah we didn't have a good year at all but what a way to end it played spoilers for the yankees you're now going to play probably a one game playoff against the red sox to try to get to the playoffs mm-hmm. well i don't know if this movie really truly understands how the playoff structure works but anyway they spoiled it for the yankees at least for one day he achieved something that so few pitchers ever have so personal achievement a team achievement at the end of a bad season gus got loaded it doesn't look like billy's drunk at all and yet billy drinks i wouldn't say he's an alcoholic but the night Consistently, before, though. he drank to pass out. Yes. And it made me think, have you ever heard of Old Pete Alexander, Grover Cleveland Alexander, I think is his name, but Old no. Pete, a picture from about, I think, more than 100 years ago, around 100 years ago. It's a story, and I Googled it. I didn't read much about it, but I think it might be fable. But regardless, it is at least fable, if not true, that he got blitz drunk before a World Series game, and his manager called him in. We need you in the last couple innings. And he got the save at the end of the game. He didn't start, but he came in and pitched a couple innings when he could barely stand. <laughs> But he pitched great when he had to. And seeing this scene made me think of that because when Costner wakes up, he is in rough shape. It's later that same day when Gus gets messed up, I guess, right? But Gus is fine. And, oh, God, Wheeler's coming to see you. Billy seems like he can get through that well enough. He fakes his way through it, the scene with Brian Cox. But it made me think of the old Pete thing, the old girl. (laughs) Because I knew he was going for the perfect game. I've seen the movie before once, but a long time ago. Have you seen the movie before? I don't think I ever did. Okay, right. And I knew he got the perfect game. It would have been actually poetic in a way if he didn't, I think. I was thinking get exactly close. that. Yeah. But I don't have a problem with him getting it. The problem I have, and I've got so many details, I'll probably go through these one by one. I won't go through them all right now, but I will do the last play. Sure. So Billy just misses getting to the ball that Strout hit. So the young kid Strout, hey, Billy, my dad was a friend of yours way back when. I know what you're going to so say So fine, you bring him in. Actually, you know what? I'm going to back up. The New York Yankees are playing for the division title. Or yeah. the playoffs, period, whatever. It doesn't really matter. They could be a wild card team. Yeah. You don't send in a kid who's never had a major league at bat before in that situation. <laughs> to pinch hit in yes. the ninth. <laughs> if he's the last guy on the bench and you have no choice, that's one of the points I was going to make. But back to the last play. So Billy just misses getting to the ball that Strout hit, which was not any kind of scorching line drive. No. The ball takes about 200 hops before the <laughs> yeah. shortstop gets to it, but he still has time to throw at Strout by a full stride. Apparently, Strout, for like a young, lean, lithe-looking kid, slow. is very slow. Yeah, I thought the same thing on that play. And of course, it's slow motion, but still, once Billy missed it, that kind of bleeder it was, and this young kid who looks like he's pretty fast, Yeah, even if he's moderate speed, you're probably not getting him. If the ball was sharply hit and Billy just missed it and the shortstop somehow got behind second base, didn't the shortstop also slide to catch it and then popped up? Yep, You did. do that... You're not getting him unless he's Albert Pujols when he had the heel problems or if he hit an absolute rocket, which he did not. It didn't bug me that much, but it did twig my interest a little bit with the baseball game start to finish was the way they decided to choreograph the sequence of at-bats and outs and stuff like that. Because it's not just the kid. There's somebody else that pinch hit first in that inning, got out, there was a regular batter, and then the kid was brought in. 
I don't really know why they felt like they needed to do that from a screenplay perspective either. I know the kid meets him in the hallway and he's like, oh, you know, I'm the son of so-and-so. I used to work in the clubhouse. The moment has no bearing on the movie whatsoever. Would have been bigger if Davis Birch got traded to them. Yes. Was either hurt or just they benched him because he wasn't that good. And then he hit yeah. in the bottom of the ninth. Or if he's just up again and happens to be the final out, even yeah. though we've seen him before, because of the relationship they had. I think that would have been more impactful and less weird from a logical perspective. It's good shorthand, actually, because he and Bill Rogers, Costner and Bill Rogers, yeah. really portray that they were bona fide friends. More so than Costner was with John C. Riley, I think. And they're friends, too. Yeah. But in those years before they traded him to the Yankees. Yeah, I got a good vibe off of that Davis relationship, and too. Davis yeah. Billy were legit friends. I like the moving scene in the flashback. Mm-hmm. Part of building Costner's identity as a sportsman or whatever, and his sense of honor of the sport and respecting the game and all that is, he's talking to Davis about having signed with the Yankees. What about They've been you? traded to. Okay, so hold on a second. This was part of my confusion. It was an pennant race, I think, the previous year, or maybe a couple years before. Yeah, but part of my confusion with the way this movie was written, too, is they said he was traded, but in the offseason, because Detroit wouldn't meet his contract demands. So was that a trade because the Yankees were going to extend him at more money and he was the last year of an expiring deal? Or was that just poor writing and really he just signed as a free agent with the Yankees? Well, because they've got a lot of issues with the baseball in the movie, it could be that they just botched that. I think it was but it also a bit of a could botch. be yeah. But it also could be that Detroit wasn't going to pay him, so Wheeler wasn't going to pay him the money he wanted. Right. But the Yankees would, or he got traded for a pennant race and then said, "You know what? I can still go back to Detroit. We've seen it before. Yeah, a guy goes to team for two months. Chapman got traded to Chicago, right, for Gabriel Torres, right, yeah. Chapman, and signed back with them the right. following season. So he could have done that, but then wasn't going to get what he wanted. It could be. The implication I think we're meant to understand is Detroit was not going to give this guy the money. New York was. So he ends up with the Yankees one way or the other, right? And the line that Costner says to him is, what about the team? And then Davis turns around, points at his kids. His wife says, this is my team. Mm -hmm. My family is what's important to me, and I'm going to do anything I need to do. To the guy who has no family. Yeah, to the guy who has no family. And it's kind of an interesting throwaway line to me because I can see both sides of that argument. I think any sport fan of any team likes players that demonstrate loyalty to your favorite team, Mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, you can't argue with, I only have so many years, and you don't even know how many years that is because you might injure your hand in a table saw accident (laughs) and your career is over, (laughs) right? I only have so many years in me in this game. I got to make sure I make enough money to set up my family. To Costner's credit, he doesn't fight him on that. Costner's character clearly has a perspective of the team comes first. We're all part of this Detroit Tigers effort to win how dare you leave? And when he says, no, actually, my family comes first, Costner's reaction was, all right, fair enough. And then he gets up and starts moving stuff. That was a really good moment between two teammates and two friends. And why the later moment when he says, I'll miss you most of all, after striking Davis mm-hmm. out, that was almost like a tear in my eye kind of moment. Just watching I think he meant that both as a teammate and as an opponent. I think you're right. For as bad as some of the dialogue and the relationship stuff is, there are moments in this movie that are great. layered and yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I talked about the things I have an issue with. Let me go through the rest of the ones I have an issue with then right now. Sure. This is something I read online and I hadn't thought of it when I was watching the movie. So it's a little bit unfair, but I will bring it up. So Billy was a 10 and five man. This is what I had. Yeah. 10 years in the league, five in a row with one team. That's a baseball thing. It's been in uh-huh. the league for a long time. So the new owners, Wheeler talked about it. They will trade to San Francisco, but they can't. If he doesn't want to go to San Francisco... Or to Toronto, or to Pittsburgh, or to Florida. He's not going there. He can stay in Detroit the rest of his career. Well, until his contract is up, and then he can't stay there anymore. But as long as he has a contract, he doesn't have to be traded anywhere if he doesn't want to be. So they didn't get that part right. Not a huge thing. Although I do like Coster and Brian Cox together. 
Now, we've seen Cox before because we just covered last year him being the father. He's a father figure here, but the father of Dennis Quaid in The Rookie. That was the huge year that Cox had. I've covered so many movies oh, yeah. he did in 2002. He was in The Ring, an adaptation, and also The Rookie. And now Costner here he was is. in The Ring? Sorry, no, or Brian Cox was. Cox was. Brian Cox was, yeah. yeah. And the scene, I didn't really like the way they wrote the owner at all because even the whole thing about, ah, this game's too much for me anymore. They give him some illogical things to say. It's almost like he's this whiny defeatist. And, of course, he owns this major league team. He's a very rich guy. But still, he played that scene with Costner very well. Yeah. But I'm not sure the so. dialogue's very good. And the whole thing about how they're going to trade you, but they can't. I think the 10 and 5 stuff has been in baseball since at least the 70s, right? But even if that wasn't true, it makes no sense that I can think of that a prospective purchaser of this team would be going to Brian Cox and saying, the first thing we're going to do is yes. get this Chapel guy out of here. Because everybody seems to love Chapel, And I understand it's a rebuilding team at this point, it sounds like, and all that. Okay, so you need to load up on kids. There's still enough value in a Billy Chapel that if you're going to make the decision to trade him, you buy the team, see what you got going on in the organization, mm. maybe decide the deadline next year. It's not before the deal is even done. We're trading this guy yeah. out of here. Also, the guy trading the team for the season's even over, which I guess happens sometimes. But the night before or the, whatever it was, the deal was fine. Maybe it's not finalized, but he's talking with his star player the day of the last game of the season. Well, I'm going to sell to this team. I guess publicly, maybe we wouldn't have known that for weeks or months. Maybe that's what the logic is, but he's just telling a guy, insider trading almost in a way. And it's also just added drama to a movie is part of the reason why they did it. Of course. It is the impetus to get him to retire ultimately. And I had mixed feelings about that. The realization that this team was not going to win in his remaining career, regardless if he came back the next year. Does he pitch the perfect game and then say, you know what? I still got it. Maybe, or, you know what, how many players go out on top? The ultimate swan song. It's very rare. Jordan might have had the greatest opportunity to do that. But he came back. But he came back with Washington. Mm -hmm. So does the movie work and maybe work better? I think maybe it does. If he finishes the perfect game, he's thinking about Kelly Preston, and he's like, you know what, I've done all I need to do. I've won it all. I'm a Hall of Famer. This is what's going to be important for me going forward. I retire, and the whole trade stuff isn't really an element because it feels a little bit like he's being forced out because he doesn't want to move to San Fran. True. Although apparently he lives in California in the offseason. Right. So it's, I get loyalty to Detroit, but it feels like playing in California, not such a bad deal either. Not that much of a stretch for this guy. That's true. Some more issues I have with it. I felt like more than once they had Vince Scully, one of the greatest, if not the greatest baseball broadcaster of all time, most famous maybe, saying that Billy was throwing one kind of pitch when what was shown was something else. A curveball versus a fastball, inside versus outside. Which is, I guess, in the editing and everything. It's not the end of the world, but it seems a little weird to make Vince Scully look like. Fastball on the outside corner. That looked like some kind of breaking ball. or a, I guess yeah. a sinker is a fastball, but that was not a straight pitch. I caught that too. I think I attributed it to a mix of they just had the audio dub from Vince Scully and they couldn't quite line up the shots perfectly. I hear where you're coming from on that a one. Minor thing. By the way, getting back to the 10 to 5 thing, I will admit... That does feel a little bit like when you see on the IMDb goof section where somebody will say, well, actually, a general would have this number of stars on his sleeve this way, and this number, the epaulets would be like this, when the rest of us would never know any of those things and wouldn't care. The filmmakers did the best they could, or at least got close. The rest of us wouldn't notice any of it. Okay, another problem. Billy is visibly wincing on a regular basis in late innings. Mm -hmm. The manager would have pulled him when he looks like he's flat out hurt, not just sore, not just tired. Billy looks hurt, whether he had a perfect game or not. Let's not forget, Simmons didn't seem to be his biggest fan anyway. What is Simmons' character's name? Frank Perry. They were a bit of a clashing twosome anyway. And he nearly lost his career 
Billy did the previous offseason after that table saw accident. So when he's looking like that in the mound, I know it's a perfect game. It's a big moment. And anybody wants to be part of a perfect game. It's not my perfect game, but I'm going to be part of something as important as that. So yes. Gus's whole thing about we're behind you, Billy, is great. And these guys make some incredible plays. Third baseman makes that a great play. Hart yeah. makes that incredible play to rob a home run off of Davis Birch as well. If I have a criticism just in general of the way the baseball is portrayed in this movie, I wish that they had decided against all those hard hit balls. I get you're trying to get the players behind him making some cool plays and stuff. But then when you get to the ninth inning, you have those two pinch hitters, including like you already touched on, that rookie. It feels weirder that they would do that. I could get the argument, New York Yankees needing to win to get in. Doesn't make sense they would pinch it. If they're making no contact off of Billy Chapel, I could see the manager saying, okay, guys, we got to change something up. But they've been just blistering the ball and been robbed so many times. If I'm the manager, I'm saying, okay, we've hit the ball hard right at guys, or they've made incredible plays. If and we- also, they're always beefing at the umpire about the calls. I yeah. think he's got a wide strike zone. He really does. I wish it was just weak contact until that mm. point, if you're going to have the pinch hitting stuff going on in the ninth. If we're meant to understand that Billy's reached back into the time capsule and pulled yeah. something forth, while well, he's 40, his shoulder hurts, by the time he gets to the later innings, he has nothing left, and he's just junk balling it at that point. He's I, not, no, he's only throwing fastballs because he can't throw a curve. It hurts too much. That's true. You're right. Not much left on it, though. I don't love it from a portrayal's perspective. And equally, I agree with you with the relationship between J.K. and Costner. That scene in the bullpen when he's saying, I'm going to put the other guy in, not Gus, because I want to win this game. Yeah. I already said, I like that moment from the manager's perspective that he wants to win. But of course, Gus scores the only run, though. Of course, yeah. You knew as soon as that argument happened, that's what's going to happen, right? Gus is going to have a big hit. But at the same time, this is your star pitcher still. Apparently, Gus has caught him basically every game for the entirety he's of Gus's career. Yeah. He's his catcher. You're not switching him out on the last. And then the argument makes J.K.'s character look like a bit of an ass in the bullpen. So that later on, like you said, the mound visits and the conversations in-game between J.K. and Costner feel a little bit weird. Do they have a combative relationship? Because that's kind of what it felt like pre-game. But now they're respectful, buddy-buddy guys. Where's my butt pat? That was a cute line. But the relationship felt bipolar that way Mm -hmm. a little bit. If you're J.K. Simmons and you're watching Billy Chapel on the mound... I guess you don't think at this point it's the last game of his career. No. But we've definitely seen veteran pitchers. And I mean, the most obvious example of this is Kurt Schilling in the playoffs, right? Literal bleeding ankle through the sock kind of stuff. But we know there's been plenty of cases of pitchers pitching hurt visibly and the manager coming out and not pulling them after the mound visit. I think it's only meant to indicate this is a veteran guy who I respect, right? And so if you tell me that you're hurt, but you can pitch through it, I'll let you go. But I think that's why it was interesting that Costner said, if it gets worse, I'll sit myself. Yeah. But then he prays to God and then he's okay. Yeah. There's an element to this movie that does yearn for the baseball of old, like the 60s. I just thought of it. You know what this is? What's that? This is the pitcher version of the natural. Yeah. He shouldn't be hitting. He's bleeding through that thick wool (laughs) uniform that's, I know, four or five inches away from his body. It's so big and thick and everything like that. You okay, fella? Let's play ball. You're going to die. You can't play right now, but he's got one more home run in him. <laughs> Starring 25-year-old Wilfred Brimley. <laughs> Looking great. <laughs> that was even older, timey baseball. Also a fable, though. Also a fable. This movie, through the lens of Brian Cox's character, through the lens, to a certain degree, I think, of Kevin Costner's character, they view the game as this mythical thing, not dissimilar to like the voiceover of Field of Dreams. 
and the pitchers of old throw 370 innings. Yeah. They pitch through every kind of torn ligament because they're all hopped up on the greenies from the bowl in the clubhouse mm-hmm. and stuff. And they save it for the last bit. Yeah. Unlike the guys now where they're throwing 99 in the first inning. I think they're trying to represent Coster as being a bit of a throwback. When Billy Chapel is introduced in the broadcast in the movie and it throws up his stats from the season... He's 40 years old and he's... Numbers aren't that bad. No, he's got an ERA in like the mid threes. Hmm. He's thrown 220 some odd innings as a 40 year old. He's walked a lot of batters, but for a team that's as bad, his numbers aren't that terrible. The thing that stood out to me is the strikeout numbers, right? And I know in this era of baseball, strikeout numbers were not what they are today. It was a different attitude, weak contact and all that was desirable. Get more innings under your belt. But he had 220 some odd innings pitched and like 98 strikeouts. It's like four strikeouts per nine or something. He's their Jack Morris, I guess. Yeah, he kind of is. He was the best pitcher on the team in 84, which they depict in this movie. This one's pedantic, by the way, another criticism, but I'm going to bring it up. Sure. They show a woman who's hawking toys in the crowd. She leans on a wall and watches the action in the ninth inning, so with two outs. They stop selling beer in, I think, the seventh (laughs) inning in most places. It seems completely illogical. The concessionaire, who wasn't selling food or drinks would be out there at all, with anything at all whatsoever. Never mind a toy hawker. I didn't see that. What are you doing <laughs> out there, Because you would think that people could still say in the eighth inning, I'll take a beer, I'll take yeah. a hot dog, but toys, you're not selling anything. That wouldn't happen. <laughs> Maybe she works on commission and she really needs that last sale or something to make rent. Well, I don't think they have a choice, though, because I think what happens is, I think I read this somewhere, that the people that sell the beer yeah. and the hot dogs and the toys and whatnot, they buy the stuff and then they've got to sell it. Maybe they can sell it back, although with food and drink, probably not. The toys, maybe you can. Oh, so they're effectively independent contractors I at that think point? I read that somewhere. Maybe that's not true. But if it is true, then that's even more that's sad. wild. Yeah. This year, because of the changes they've implemented to speed up the game, games are happening a lot faster. So mm-hmm. they've actually changed the rules now to allow sale of beers later into the game. Okay, because yeah. they weren't selling enough beer. Right, the game right, was ending yeah. too quickly, yeah. right? On the topic of concessions and sales and all that stuff, though... The first shot we have of Yankee Stadium in this movie, the approaching fly-in shot, going to the gates, there's two jerseys on display for sale, Paul O'Neill's jersey and Derek Jeter's jersey. Hmm. So right away I see that. I'm like, oh, why do you have two real-life players' jerseys on display in this very prominent shot to start the movie and then never mention them again in this very important game? Two of your star players. I thought that was a very odd choice. Because they referenced the fact that Tigers won in 84, which they did. That's right. Kirk Gibson, I said Jack Morris, Lance Parrish, Lou Whitaker, all those really great players on that team. They legit won in 84. The Tigers did. But then they've got this real-life Yankees team, which is dominant. And they were in real life using these people's name, like you say, but then not actually showing them in the film. They got the rights to the logos, to the team name, all that. Just get... Paul O'Neill shooting one day. Mm. You're at bloody Yankee Stadium already. I assume they shot it at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, it was there. Yeah, Maybe so. not all of it, but definitely some of it was there. A lot of it was there. So yeah, just get him in there for an hour or two, taking swings in the batter's box so you can plausibly have him as part yeah. of the movie. This and was shot in the fall and winter, by the way, so they could have, the season was there over. There you go. The Yankees played in the World Series that year and won it, but that was into October. They were shooting well past that. Very often we've criticized actors for not being able to plausibly look like they're doing the thing these guys do these guys do as does costner very much so yeah we say is a great athlete as we know he was doubled by dave island a real life pitcher okay but when he goes down for that one weekly hit ball or it's a bunt it's a bunt slides and then throws to first 
Either that's really good digital effects on his face that they replaced, which wasn't really common back then, I don't think, or Costner made one hell of a nice play. I thought the same thing, just watching that as a bit of stunt work by Costner mm. or something. It looked natural, it looked smooth. Mm. I think that's Costner, because like you said, in the late 90s, to plausibly digitally replace the face in that sequence for a movie like this mm. feels like it would have looked jankier or not as clean. Costner's pretty believable. He's not quite Charlie Sheen, who may be the most believable actor pitcher ever, but Costner's certainly on that list. He's up there. The last thing I'll mention about the things that are annoying, but this is the one I think you maybe can call me on if you heard something different than I okay. did. Vince Scully said he never thought he'd call another perfect game after Don Larson in the 56 World Series, but he called two others, including Dennis Martinez as El Perfecto for the Expos in Dodger Stadium. Now, maybe he said he never thought he'd call another one in Yankee Stadium. Mm. If he said that, then that's okay. But otherwise, he's not remembering his own history. Yeah. Which is probably on the film more than him. Filmmaker is more than him. My interpretation of the line was that he meant it in terms of the Yankees in okay. Yankee Stadium. I think that's what it is. You've got me doubting it a little bit I'm now. I'm being pedantic. <laughs> Kevin Costner, our last movie we'll ever cover now. We've done six of them. Field of Dreams, Tin Cup, Draft Day, McFarland, and Molly's Game. And it's curious that he only really played sports in two of them. Tin Cup and this. Field of Dreams, very briefly, but most of the time he's watching them play baseball. Draft day, he's a GM, never plays the sport at all. Right. McFarland, he's the coach of the track team. Gets physically involved in a way, but it's them running. And Molly's game, he's his daughter's coach. That's right. Of, of course, that's a poker movie, really, but it's also a bit of a ski movie. So he's in six sports movies, but only actually plays in two of them. But then you and I did not cover Bull Durham, where that would have changed this thing a little bit. I still think, though, he's one of the greatest athletes in the history of film. And Bull Durham is the main reason why, because you watch him in that movie, and he is so believable. One of the things that we've definitely identified over the course of this podcast in its entirety is that you can be a believable athlete and not look like Sylvester Stallone and Rocky or Wesley Snipes and White Men Can't Jump or something. You don't have to be shredded and ripped to look like an athlete. I like how Costner at one point is grabbing his side. Yeah. He does not look fat at all, but he's got flabby skin. You're talking about that shot in the locker room. Yeah. He's just like stripped to the waist. And this is right? a sex symbol as well. This guy was a sex symbol through a lot of his career. He's a hairier man than I knew he was. <laughs> He's got musculature to his arms, sure. which makes some sense, I guess, for a pitcher. But otherwise, you're right. The epitome of dad bod, I guess, mm -hmm. as you would describe it now, it's all about the fluidity of the motion, the comfort, and the shifting of the weight, and all that kind of stuff. And it looks believable. And I think that's what matters. You don't need to get down to 3% body fat and look like The Rock in order to portray a pitcher. He knows how to pick his spots where he can plausibly portray the sport and where it would be like, come on, man, really? Reaction if he tried to? So maybe this is the Costner apologist in me, but... <laughs> we are that. I give him credit. Yeah. Uh, John C. Riley. We cover Days of Thunder and Talladega Nights, the two yeah. racing movies. And of course, he's been great so often in the Paul Thomas Anderson films, Boogie Nights especially. Talked about Kelly Preston being in Jerry Maguire. This could have been Annette Benning, by the way. Really? And she's a better actress, so... I'm not trying to rip on Kelly Preston. It's not like she's bad. Jenna Malone's career was surprised because she's done a lot of things, but I was trying to find the Red Letter films, and I love Donnie Darko, but that's such a nerd film. Nobody saw it in the theater. Was she in Donnie Darko? She's Jake Gyllenhaal's love interest in that. Is she really? And the other thing I found, she's in the Hunger Games sequels. That's quite a gap. <laughs> and also, not even the main character, obviously, that's Jennifer Lawrence. Yes. I thought she did more than that that really stood out. And if there's something else, somebody could say, well, she did this thing. Well, I don't think it really stood out then. It must have been some indie role. I would have thought she had a better career than that. It's not a bad career, but I thought it was bigger than that. Bill Rogers, who plays Davis, the guy who went to the Yankees, did four movies in a row with Raimi after this, including the Spider-Man sequels. I talked about Brian Cox and then J.K. Simmons, who wasn't that well known, although you looked up before we sat down. He was on Oz, Oz by this point. 
which I never saw. You and Bev have talked about Oz a lot of times, and I guess he's the neo-Nazi, so he he's is, the bad yeah. guy. But then he became so well-known for playing J. Jonah Jameson in Spider-Man three times, and now in the more recent ones again, too. And then, of course, the great Whiplash, That's where right. he won the Oscar so deservedly, which is, in some ways, a sports movie. <laughs> <laughs> this tough-ass coach. Sure. Basil Poladuris composed the music. I thought the music score was going to be great in the beginning because I loved it in the opening sequence where you see Costner's parents yeah. and the young Costner, which I guess is real footage of the family. But then the music score, for the most part, is pretty bland. But this is the guy that did Conan the Barbarian, which a lot of people love as a score, and then really? Robocop. Yeah. I like the Robocop score. I know that one really well. The scoring of the movie didn't really stand out all that much to oh, me. Oh, it didn't to me except in the opening. Yeah. But there were definitely some musical choices that really put this movie in a time and a place to me. It was things like the montage sequences. The first montage we get, I think, in New York with Kelly Preston and Kevin Costner is just really heavy, loud, on-the-nose, alt-rocky, 90s romantic stuff. God, you really hammer that home. And it's a long sequence, too. It's not like it's a five-second, ten-second. It's like 90 seconds of this. I'm like, yep, you are a 90s rom-com through and through. It's such a time and a place kind of thing. But other than that, it was one of the more forgettable mm. musical movies I can remember seeing recently. Except the intro. The intro is pretty neat. I guess we've talked about the depiction all through the whole podcast. I like the touch that our heroes are on the road for this game. I think that's pretty good. Yes. They're in Yankee Stadium as well. I think Raimi shot it pretty well for the most part, especially the baseball stuff. But they get so many things wrong, which I've already highlighted through this whole thing. So I'm really on the fence about the depiction. And as for a score, I'll give it in a second. But can you score? Well, Costner and Preston, two good-looking people in this movie. Pretty sure it's PG. Maybe it's PG-13. I'll look here. It has to be PG. But they don't ever swear. Which may be the most unrealistic thing about the depiction of the sport is the utter lack of swear. PG-13. The depiction of the sport is definitely uneven. At times, like we've talked about, it feels like either the actors if not the screenwriters at least, have a good feel right down to the clear the mechanism stuff. Like that a lot. You can't do that anymore because fatigue, because the moment is so big, because he's in pain, like all of that stuff. That feels like somebody that understands what it's like to push yourself to this point. Even if it's on pro sport, you just push yourself to a point where you're grinning and bearing it. It really is a mixed bag and I found it effective. I, the baseball stuff. The baseball course. stuff, yeah. By the end of it, I was emotionally affected by the journey that Costner took on the mound. Was the movie trying to say, oh, look, Costner looks up in the seventh inning and realizes for the first time it's a perfect game? Was there meant to be a parallel between the pitching of the ball game and the flashbacks that I was missing? Because the way they cut back and forth, it seemed like they wanted there to be, but I didn't understand if what it was. If the movie was implying he's thinking about Jane, yeah. he's not as focused as should be just to pitch any game, let alone a perfect game. Right, yeah. Because as much as I love my wife, and this, again, is softball. I know people might say, what do you guys do this always for? Because it's what we like to do, and we're, I think, pretty good at it. In the middle of the moment, I'm not thinking about, what does Beth think of what's happening right now? And I don't think she'd be bothered by that. I'm busy. (laughs) We can talk about how you feel about it later. I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about what I'm doing right now. You're playing a game where you could get hurt if you're not focusing on what's going on. Well, that's the other element. There was like a laser beam hit back, a comeback that he caught. Or, it, yeah. that he caught. Mm-hmm. Even the broadcast are like, oh, at that point, it's just pure instinct. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, he better have pure instinct because he's so busy reminiscing about his love interest yeah. that he could have lost his teeth yeah. in that moment. Yeah, I get why they did all that stuff. And it's a different way to do a sports movie. And I didn't hate that part, but it didn't really fully work at any point. And Kelly Preston's a victim, I think, of bad writing and Costner is at times, too. I'm extremely generous in saying this. I'm going to give it a six. Maybe I'm being nostalgic because the podcast is ending and I like Costner, especially in sports films. 
But I was pretty touched by the ending of the game, and I like the coda with the two of them in the airport more than you did. I can relate to, or feel like I can relate to that a lot more than I might have when I saw this. I know I saw this, but I feel like it was at least 20 years ago. And I didn't hate this movie, but I know I didn't like it. And 6 out of 10 is barely a passing grade. I'm being very generous in saying that. As I was on Rollerball, I gave that a 6 because I respected the craft that went into the movie I didn't care about. Which would I rather see again? Neither. What's your score? I'm more torn on this than I've been maybe on any movie I can remember because part of me wants to say two because so many elements of it are so ridiculous. But at the end of the day, this movie had multiple moments that touched me and almost made me tear up. Any movie that can do that more than once, there's value there too. I don't even know if I'm going to give it a score, to be honest with you. Because abstain? I, I'm going to abstain. I don't think you're totally out of whack to say it's a six. I think if somebody enjoys this movie, I can understand. If you like the coda to the movie, I'm not going to dispute it. Well, anyway. more than you did anyway. Yeah. I thought it was logically silly that Kelly Preston, when she misses her flight, rather than take a cab back to the city to see Billy after the perfect game he just threw. That's a good point. She stays at the airport. And she's not poor. I know she has given up her lease, I guess, so she can't go back to her apartment, but why wouldn't you go back to see Billy? Or find a hotel somewhere. It's not like you left on horrible terms. Maybe she found a hotel and went back to the airport. That could be what it was. She said she stayed at the airport hotel in in that scene. Clearly, they just wanted to have the meet cute at the yeah, end. That's what it is. So anyway, it's a flawed movie, but it's one that's definitely got heart to okay, it. Okay, well then, no rating. Would you watch it again? No. Okay. I don't think <laughs> I would. Partly because it's so long. You know what I would do, though? This is one of those movies where if there was a montage of clips on YouTube or something where it was maybe some of his inner monologue on the map or something, that? I'd watch that. Because yeah. that stuff with him and Davis was legitimately touching, yeah. like I said. Bev said that in one of the, well, a few, I think, of the musicals we watched over the years, dance movies we watched. Yeah. She hated Swing Time, a movie from the 30s, but she did acknowledge, I believe, in that podcast that she'd watch the individual dances. Sure. Not the movie itself. Well, I guess that's the same here with you. Yeah. And the baseball scenes. Okay, that was For Love of the Game. This podcast is closing up shop on June 7th. That's five years to the day we started it, so we're putting up our final episode that Wednesday rather than our usual Thursday, which would be the 8th. We'll have posted 131 shows in total, and that feels like the right time to say goodbye. We didn't cover some of the great sporters, like Bull Durham with Costner, The Hustler, the first Rocky, but that's only because Bev and I talked about them already on my other podcast, Have You Ever Seen, or what we called then the Top 100 Project. And of course, I'm going to continue doing that other podcast every week and every other Friday like I did before. But I need to stop spending so much time in this podcast room and spend more time in the out of doors like I did today. <laughs> it's now mid-May as we record this, and it's a very nice day. Plus, the only great or even particularly good sports movies left for us to cover are ones from decades ago, yeah. Or they haven't been made yet. Or it's movies that might be good even from the more recent era, like your whole point was in the 90s, even the 80s, that we've never heard of, or at least you have never heard of before. And then yeah. that's not the point of the podcast. We met the desire a long time ago. Of the, yeah, <laughs> a long time ago and kept going. And Spinning I think had fun doing here. it, but you're right. We've come to a logical end point for it. And five years is a nice round number to do it. We've talked about Kevin Costner six times over the years, but there's a man who after June 7th will have come up seven times on this channel. And his name is Sylvester Stallone. We couldn't wrap this mother up without talking about a Rocky movie for the last time. And the only one I've never discussed between my two podcasts, Rocky Balboa. Okay, we didn't review Creed 3, but it just came out a few months ago. And we don't usually worry about new movies. No. So we'll exclude the fact that we didn't cover that. Solid movie. I enjoyed it, by the way. I saw it in the theater when it was out months ago. No Stallone, though. No Stallone, that's true. So this will be the last round. Rocky Balboa. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find us in all the podcast places. I assume forever. I don't know how that stuff works, but I guess it'll be up online forever. 
The email, by the way, is scoringupthemovies at gmail.com. You take her perfect, Kev. For whatever anyone ever says about you, you're probably the greatest sports movie actor ever. Mm-hmm. Including Stallone. Oh. We're going to we'll fight about that, that next, next time. time. Two weeks from now. June 7th, the finale.